0: All of those books are available on Amazon as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: I remember in school, down the back of the biology class, I used to sit beside this fellow called Keith Barry. And Keith Barry was mad into the drums. And he just one day started talking about this thing called a detox. And I was like, what the hell is a detox? And we kind of kicked it around a bit. And no one knew what it was. It wasn't in the social dialect. It wasn't a word that was used. So I remember going down to the local library because the internet wasn't around. And I asked them, do you have a book on detox? And they said, no, nope, but there's one in Dublin. It'll be here next week. So I was like, great. So we, great service Great service So we got the book the next week And we read it And it was like Okay cool So it says Okay so we're going to eat Brown bread instead of white bread We're going to eat porridge Instead of cornflakes And cereals We're going to give up junk food And the big thing was no booze So we said we'd do this For a couple of weeks before the marathon our our detox so we did it and we found out it was pretty nice and we felt kind of pretty grounded and we were interested in like lentils and beans and what the hell's a chickpeas this is before supermarkets used to stock these strange kind of ethnic foods so the way we were brought up so it was fascinating in lots of ways and this kind of was the start of us understanding that food was more than simply sustenance (laughs)
0: Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to The Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path and their purpose. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of others Who have heard their story or who've witnessed them in action. My guests today are my very first identical twin guests. They hail from Ireland. And as you'll hear, they've taken the plant-based world by storm over the past several years. Their names are Steve and Dave, otherwise known as the happy pear. That's P-E-A-R, like the fruit. Steve and Dave are in their forties now, but when they were traveling the world in their early 20s, as twin power goes, while on opposite sides of the world, they both happened to switch to a plant-based diet within a week of one another without realizing that the other one had gone plant-based. And from there, the happy pear seed was sown. Currently, they promote a healthier, happier world. And get this, every single morning, For years, they have cultivated community around rising early and heading to their local beach to catch the sunrise and take a dip in the ocean, and yes, even in the winter months, which can be quite cold in Ireland. The Happy Pear runs cafes, they have several plant-based products and grocery stores throughout Europe, and they've produced a handful of best-selling online courses and plant-based cookbooks and it didn't start that way they started very very humbly with just one cafe and a pretty awesome mission their latest book which is the veg box 10 vegetables 10 ways is awesome it's literally a book of 100 recipes made out of these 10 vegetables and it's the perfect collection of easy and accessible recipes for vegans vegetarians or really anyone who's looking to eat more plants in their diet. I think you're going to get a lot of value from listening to this episode. You're going to fall in love with The Happy Pair, and you're going to find their story extremely inspiring. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Steve and Dave of The Happy Pair.
2: Steve, Dave, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. It's an honor Having the tables turned, I was just on your show in, the, in season six, I believe. And here we are, you're on my show.
1: Hey, hey. Lovely to see you. Yeah, <laughs> really, really You're us. You've and wonderful as always.
2: Yeah, thanks, man. You're the first set of twins I've ever interviewed. So this will be an interesting, you know, just negotiating it. Obviously, I can see you, but just for the listeners, how do you guys normally do that anyway? Do you say, this is Dave, or this is Steve, or uh, you just kind of talk? Because yeah, you kind of sound wonderful. alike,
1: too. It's kind of yeah. one voice. And then when we're doing a lot of interviews, you'll just stand on one of this foot or else punch one another. Or whatever. <laughs> my go, my go, my go. There'd be some means of under the table communication between us to go, I'm dying to say something, you know, and you go, okay, you're good. You know, and then we we'll yeah. take that back.
2: Well, I, I, in doing my research, I discovered that we actually have quite a bit in common. So I'm looking forward to getting into those commonalities as well. But, Talk about growing up in Greystones. What was that like? I know you have two other brothers, and were your parents together?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their
1: yeah, parents are still together. I think they're married fifty years. Wow. I think it's something it was like forty-seven, it. maybe. I think no, it was I think maybe it's forty-seven. Something a long time anyway, a long time. Oh, you guys yes. are
2: you're the oldest, right?
1: Yeah, yeah we're the eldest. Yeah, and we grew up in a small. So, so Greystones is a small little town. It's twenty k south. The what Dublin. country is it in? Co- country Ireland. Yes. Ireland. So it's Ireland on the east coast of Ireland, small little town. If anyone's seen Lord of the Rings, it's kind of like the Shire. It's like very pleasant, full of hobbits with no small hairy feet. No, it's not. But it's by the sea and it's really nice. It's got all mountains around it and small little like town in Ireland. So that's where we grew up in. And 42 years later, we still live here. It's been wonderful and glorious and also the valley of squinting windows they call it you know a small little town where everyone's look everyone valley knows what never heard that expression yeah. like it's an old irish expression that would be more the valley of squinting windows where everyone's looking out their windows looking at what's going on and everyone's looking what's, to know wha- what the neighbor doing like you know that kind of way that people go to more urban centers or cities because there's a bit more anonymity whereas in a small town you've got the the wonderful joys of community and connection and knowing all your neighbors, but it also comes with the idea that people, a lot of people Social know accountability. Business. Social accountability, which you don't tend to get in a city.
2: Right. So I grew up with three other brothers and I grew up in a small town. <laughs> and I remember growing up, all I could think about was getting out of the small town and going to some big city and having that experience. So what were you guys thinking of in terms of where your lives were heading? Did you see yourself... Always doing everything together, or do you think to yourself, "I can't wait to get away from Dave or Steve"? At some point, you know, when you were younger, and I want to do blaze my own path because I actually have an, an Irish twin. My older brother is eleven months older than I am, so I was always in his shadow. All of the teachers that he had, I had, and so I could never really form my own identity, and that's something that was really important to me. So, what was your experience like with that?
1: I think being a twin, you just by the very nature of it, you're you're blessed, or if you chose to see it another way, you could say you're cursed with this joint identity. <laughs> You know, for the majority of my life anyway, and Dave's too, it's like not hello, Stephen, or hello David. It's which one of you were greeted with which Typically, one of you? That was more your name. So, so there is part of it, like <laughs> like it or low, that you're kind of this is part of the identity that we're born in this existence. And you know, it's been wonderful. You know, and even after- even even in a small town like we literally shared a wardrobe tour at 30. Like, so it was first up, best dressed, you know, it really was that situation. So, where you, you know, we'd we'd a room off one another. So, you you just shared everything. You were just, you know, we wear one egg that's split into two, which sounds weird. That's with inside a womb. So,
0: it's almost like
1: we've been cloud computing in a sense, like cloud computing sounds weird, but it's just a, a metaphor for how people might understand it that it's, there's always been a symbiosis more so than siblings and more so than brothers or typical relationships because. You've got this route that a lot of people don't have, you know, where you wear one egg that's split into two, and you've spent so much time be- that you can almost see what the other one's thinking from his moo, his mannerisms, his, his movement, breath. his physiology, everything. You just know it intuitively because it's just. An and age. there were times during our life, like, you know, teenagers when you're 16, there were times when you were kind of wanting, you liked the idea of blazing your own path but at the same time you realized that it was this wonderful synergistic effect that it was like one plus one could equal 10 when you were together and you were both you knew how to bring the best out of each other it was like a conductor knew how to bring out the best of the orchestra it was like that between the two of us and once we realized that and also we realized I guess at a reasonably young age that we were relatively unemployable in that we were very autonomous autonomous and clear ideas of what we thought was a way to live a life that we wanted to live. And I think that was part of the reason why we always felt we were going to go into business together and that we wanted to try to do something together because we knew we'd have a laugh. And Whether whether it was furniture removal or whether it was selling orange juice to train station or what (coughs) did happen, starting a vegetable shop. So it was always going to be Asher, me and him versus the world, you know, that kind of way.
2: What were some of your ideas of success that you inherited from your family growing up?
1: Let's say it was less family and more culture because, you know, mm-hmm. culture, it would have always been grown up in school. And I remember growing up in secondary school and we used to draw logos on our copy books and you'd be drawing symbols like Nike and Adidas. Like it was, you know, it was the start of the brands in the early nineties where brands were synonymous. So you'd write Levi's or these kind of things because you kind of, the, 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 there was this the, the, subconscious, can I just finish There was a subconscious narrative of like consumerism and capitalism. And this is, You know, there was this subtext to society that there was, you know, if you had these things, you were successful. And I remember transitioning into teenagers and we wanted branded clothes because that was a sign, you know, that you were an adolescent that was trying to find your own identity. And we obviously wanted branded clothes, not the cheap clothes that most kids had. So I guess that the narratives would have been that the same ones that most people, like we're 42. So growing up in the 80s, 90s was that materialism. The more things you had, the more successful you were going to be. And that was the likely narratives. In spite of it, and that wouldn't have come from our parents. Our parents were both It was just very culturally grounded. really, like we both did business separately, actually. It was the first time where we were, we, we technically had to separate and have some degree of a divorce. Was we both applied to do the same college and university and we got different points, so we had to go to different colleges. So that was kind of like the first separation, the first divorce, which, you know, in lots of ways was challenging. But at the same time, I think there's enough inertia that you you were so used to having this support system that it always meant that you just felt like it was there even when it wasn't there. But at university studying business, it's very much, you know, heralded. Like there was one lecture I remember, he used to lecture financial management. And he was all about how much money he had. And all the lads used to kind of idealize and go, oh, my God, the wealth he has. And he just flew in by a helicopter to
0: give this lecture. Oh, my
1: God. So it was really celebrated kind of wealth and success or what, quote, unquote, you know, materialism, if you start climbing up the material ladder and even being being these like obviously being an identical twin we're super competitive cuz you've always been competing for everything like competing for dinner or competing for a rugby ball or competing for a tennis ball or competing for your mother's love and attention when people say they're competitive it's like no you're not if you're not an identical twin you, like it's just a different level of competitiveness because everything in every moment of like it was just we were bred on competition whether we wanted it or not like we're just both innately very competitive Through nurture rather than nature. By the time we went to like, you know, and that that played out that we played semi-professional rugby by the time we were 18. We both played off very low. You know, I nearly went pro in golf. We were, you know, we played baseball for Ireland. We played, you know, we were very good at those type of things. And then being in an all boys school, if you kissed a pretty girl, you got great social credit. And that was how the kind of social pecking order used to work in an all boys school. So when we're in the later years of school, you know, obviously, if you kissed a pretty girl, so obviously, we got quite competitive about that. That was another means of expressing yourself and trying to climb up the social pecking order. And then we went to university. And it was all about, as Stephen said, the subtext was, if you make loads of money, you're going to be happy. So we very much being hyper competitive, identical twins was like, you know, Steve was all about if that lad Richard Branson has a private island, like, well, then Dave, right, this is it. By the time we're 40, we're going to have three private islands. Three private islands. We're going to planes. This is it. We're going for it. I'm going to be a stockbroker. You're going to be a stockbroker too. And we're going to just divide and conquer, right, Dave? Like, and that, that would have been the plan in business school. And then by the end of it, both of us not, neither believed it anymore. Like, we really just didn't. We just, there was a sense of a slight hollowness or a slight. I don't know an emptiness just we didn't believe it anymore and Steve turns me just after we'd finished university Steve turns me he says I'm going away traveling I'm going to Canada I've got a one-way ticket I'm not coming back till I'm happy and you're not coming with me and that was it and that was that was our first kind of divorce as it would be that we both went their separate way to see what life had on offer and Really, it was the start of the whole unraveling of the social paradigm of materialism and money and things, you know, the collection of things will ultimately make you happy. And that was the start of our own individual journeys of seeing what else life had on offer, really, and what felt true for us.
0: Hey there, really quickly. you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode.
2: As I mentioned earlier, my whole shtick is I like to understand motivation. And you mentioned that you guys just kind of fell out of love with the American dream what happened? Did somebody die? And you were like, oh my God, <laughs> what is this all about? Like, how did you have this sort of existential moment? I
1: think there was always a degree of frivolness that possibly we were allured by with the idea of kind of materialism and that ultimately there was a deeper part of ourselves that we knew that was there, but that we were probably afraid to sit with because we were so busy and so entertained and distracted. And it was only, it was only a small little voice that was there. And it was like, I remember we were traveling around through Europe and I remember on a train and I remember meeting this guy who kind of clearly had been traveling for a long while and he was a real searcher for meaning in life. And I remember he was telling us about this Vipassana Meditation course. And I remember thinking, wow, that sounds cool to like hit these states of like pure bliss in silence. Wow. I remember being intrigued by that and the concept that there was, more to this game of life and that possibly it wasn't a kind of, you get to be really wealthy and then you get to the next level, like a computer game that there's possibly, you can look at it in many different ways. And I guess there's secret doorways or whatever to, you know, and, and I guess that's what each of us are fumbling around, looking for these doorways to a greater sense of ease within ourselves. Because, pain and suffering with our current minds and most of our mental states is just part of daily life and I guess most of us are looking for deeper sense of connection and meaning within ourselves and most of us play out the cultural certainly we played out the cultural paradigm of you know drink loads of beer go out and get drunk try to meet a girl or a boy whatever your preference was in our case it was always girls and then try to get social recognition. And that was kind of part of which we thought were the pathways to greater happiness. And that, that this is in our early, you know, our late teens and early 20s. And then mm-hmm. we both went away traveling separately just to see what else life had an offer. And that was the first time we had been away without the social support. So we both realized there was we were interested in total different things, you know. It and, still, and it was beautiful in that. Like when we first went traveling separately, it was quite vulnerable. You were quite exposed. You, it, this was pre-social media, so you didn't have a phone. You didn't have this digital shadow following around. It was like there was an anonymity when you arrived in a place. It was like people really didn't know who you were, and they couldn't search who you were, and they couldn't. So you were. It was like, who am I going to be this time? Maybe I'll. Maybe I won't be a jock. Maybe I'll actually try to be a musician, or maybe one of those spiritual guys. They look kind of interesting. Maybe I'll see what this thing called yoga is, or what the hell is meditation. You know, or curiosity. There was there was a curiosity and a social freedom, like where you could kind of go, where do I want to be and who don't want what? Like, how am I going to define myself next? But I guess but I guess, without going too ephemeral, it was more this journey started with going away separately. And it was a whole, we left as these two meathead, like as in meat and two veg, loads of pints of beer, semi-pro rugby players that had just studied business that used to do male modeling because it was great to pick up girls. And this was this was who we thought we were. And we went away traveling and over a period of two years of traveling separately, we ended up both changing to adopting a vegan diet, giving up alcohol, getting into meditation, yoga, grown long hair, strong offensive body odors. And then two years later, we come back and we decide we want to start a vegetable shop to change the world. So it was it was quite a, a journey of transformation and quite a period of change within ourselves internally as much as externally. Like the external change was largely just to kind of tell our our, our home community that treat us differently. We've changed. I, I don't want to be treated the same. So in essence, like to go, you said you like to know the, the mortar between the bricks. In essence, our kind of our paradigm had shifted being from material success to be much more about community health and happiness we found this gave us a lot more meaning and we felt a lot more lit for ourselves and that's probably looking back we can put words on it but during that time you're you know you're clutching around following your gut and following your nose for what seems like it feels right you know
2: Yeah, and this is obviously your path, right? This is what you're here to do. Everyone's pretty clear about that, just being around you. But let's go back before we get into what's happening now. Let's go back to Whistler. And Dave, I'm not sure where you were at that time, but I know you both were exploring vegetarianism. And I want to talk about what your trailhead was to vegetarianism
1: individually. so, Steve here, I was, it was only when we kind of finished university, a friend, Tommy. When was that? When that was Two thousand. Yeah, around 2000, 2001. A friend, Tommy mm-hmm. Kelly, was turning 40. And Tommy was, you know, at the stage, at that time we were 20. And Tommy kind of said, lads, I wonder would you be up for running a marathon for my birthday to celebrate? And we thought, great. Because we were a good friend with Tommy's son, Gareth, and he was a great runner. And we were always, you know, very sporty. We were a bit like greyhounds, just loved to run. Um, so we thought great and this was in the summer and the marathon was the end of October and I remember mom was really proud that we finished university and I'd just done a master's it was like wow well done lads so she bought us a ticket to go traveling around Europe at the time it was called interrailing you had this train ticket that enabled you to take the train to Czech Republic oh let's go to Poland where we go today today it's Colin, or where we go so it was there was wonderful freedom and we kind of forgot to train for the marathon this was through september and we just got drunk and we chased international women and uh, we came back early october and it was like shit dave we've a marathon in 30 days we forgot to train it's like oh yeah we really should train i remember in school down the back of the biology class i used to sit beside this fellow called keith barry and keith barry was mad into the drums and he just one day started talking about this thing called a detox and it was like what the hell is a detox and we kind of kicked it around a bit and no one knew what it was. It wasn't like in the in the social kind of dialect. It wasn't a word that was used. So I remember going down to the local library because the internet wasn't around, and I asked them, "Do you have a book on detox?" And they said, "No, nope, but we, but there's one in Dublin. It'll be here next week." So it was like, "Great!" So great we, service, great service. So we got the book the next week and we read it, and it was like, "Okay, cool." So it says, "Okay, so we're going to eat brown bread instead of white bread. We're going to eat porridge instead of cornflakes and cereals." we gave give up junk food. And the big thing was no booze. So we said we'd do this for a couple of weeks before the marathon, our, our detox. So we did it and we found out it was pretty nice. And we felt kind of pretty grounded. And we were, we were interested in like lentils and beans and what the hell is a chickpeas? This is before supermarkets used to stock these strange kind of, you know, ethnic foods to the way we were brought up. So it was fascinating in lots of ways. And this kind of was the start of us understanding that food was more than simply sustenance. It was then when I went to Whistler, it was like suddenly, you know, we did the marathon and it felt great. And we still weren't drinking. And it was kind of like, hey, this feels pretty good. Like, I wonder where we keep going. This was the end of October. And we thought, well, maybe let's let's do it for another month. And we did it for another month and felt good. And then December was coming and we were meant to meet the lads. So like we went to an all boys school. So the lads were, you know, it was real kind of macho men getting together. And what do they do? They get drunk and they, you know, do stupid things together. So we were meant to meet them in Dublin. I remember going in to meet the lads and this was, we were going to get back in the wagon and have a load of booze. It was going to be great fun. And uh, we met the lads. It was in the Thunder Road cafe in Dublin in Temple Bar. And I remember going up to the bar and ordering a pint and I was delighted. Dave, here we go. We're back on it. And, you know, and he took a couple of sips of the pint. It just felt weird. And the whole kind of lad culture just felt like, nah, I've done this. This is not, the answer for me isn't here. And we left early and went home and it was kind of from there that it kind of started the curiosity within each of us to kind of go, what is food and how does this impact how we feel and how we interact with the world?
2: What was the idea for your professional life at that point in time? What were you planning to do? Oh, there was no professional life.
1: Like at that <laughs> stage, we'd gone through business. We'd studied business and gone, oh, my God, I, I'm just don't believe it all. I, I want to go away. Like. There was no real professional. It was just, yeah. Were you, you making like enough
2: that? money with the modeling and stuff to pay your bills? Um, and
1: to... I think we just, we'd loads of crappy odd, odd jobs and we'd do them to earn enough money. We were still living at home. So, and it, at that stage, university was free in Ireland. So we didn't have much costs, you know, so we saved up enough to go traveling separately. At that stage, I was 21 and I was, I went to South Africa to go, this is Dave, I went to South Africa to go see if I wanted to be a professional golfer. So I was playing off pretty much close to scratch and golf. So I went over and I joined a golf club over there with the idea of practicing for the winter and seeing if this was my path. And after about two months, I ended up selling my clubs and going, good luck, golf. I've had (laughs) enough of that. There must be more than hitting a white ball in a hole. And I just wanted to see what else life had an offer. So kind of, I guess, started a bit Jack Kerouac style or Huckleberry Finn, you know, had a few bits of clothes in my back and wandered around and. Following my nose, really seeing where my path was really in life in terms of what interested me and what didn't interest me and what kind of people. And it was a kind of two year journey for both of us where we ended up traveling separately most of the time and realized that food and spirituality and community and all these things just started emerging. Really, it wasn't so much that we were looking for anything, but we were literally following. Following sense, you know, little subtle call like you were just going to breadcrumbs, following the breadcrumbs to see if it led to a chocolate cake or something, you know, it's that type <laughs> of thing. And I guess we realized that I probably started with food, you know, we ended up changing them, but you know, at this stage, there was no internet, so it was reading books. You know, I, I guess I found a book and the book was talking about healthy food, and I guess then I got more into that, and then I probably found another book and it was about eating whole foods, and then there was another book about. Raw foods are vegan and fasting, and I would have been more and more curious and then it all crossed over to spirituality and and then, sure, we were running, we were deep down that path that after a while, you know, and realizing that yoga and meditation and spirituality and all these things kind of tied into it, and when you get a yellow car, you start seeing other people with yellow cars and then the further we went down that path of getting interest in yoga and meditation, the more type of those kind of people we met and yeah.
2: You mentioned when you came back home, you had basically changed. You had become these sort of new people. You had these new interests. You were really excited about it. I had the same experience. I was hardcore vegan, came back home to Alabama. Uh-huh. <laughs> nobody in my family. This is in the this is in the 90s. So you can imagine nobody in my family was in Alabama in the South, was into any of the, any of that. They called all of my food bird food and whatnot. And I'm just curious what kind of pushback that you all get from your family from your other brothers i know your friends thought you were a little bit weird because you weren't out drinking and doing all those things but what was your family's response like
1: oh definitely not interest they kind of thought jesus lads what the hell you know like even though you told them on the phone like oh yeah no we're vegan now mom yeah and she'd go ah yeah 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 whatever you know and and, you know, and then lo and behold, we make it home and she cooks the lamb and she cooks the beef and goes, jeez, the lads are home. Oh, I'll cook it all. I shall sure forget that shite they're on about vegan. Good luck to you. Which will you have, Steve? The, the chicken or the beef or the lamb or the beef? And she's like, mom, I'm, I'm, I'm a vegan. I told you, mom, come on. She's, ah, cut the crap there, Steve. The lamb or the beef, you know, and, uh, and obviously, you know, that was a, a cross to bear but certainly they weren't really into it at all from the start. And life. I think it was a lot easier because there was two of us that gave a lot more, I guess, support for the vulnerability and the weirdness. What we were the weirdness is in the weirdness is in we wanted to eat a vegan diet amongst a family which were all carnivores. Not carnivores, but we're the, just not in not, the, vegan yeah, not in any vegans. way. We're just normal Irish yeah, food so, choices. So I, I think having the two of us gave a lot more support to, it. but I guess over time, once they kind of saw, like, and then I uh, know I was just going to say, and I guess that that gave us realizing that, you know, here we were, we had changed our own lifestyle and our own habits. And then we realized that, and this wouldn't be rationally, this was just subconsciously realizing that, oh my God, like if we, there's no way we're going to be able to battle this storm by ourselves. So Steve had the idea, why don't we start a vegetable shop or why don't we start something which is like, you know, what we wanted to find, like, you know, the places that we used to when we were traveling, we'd be trying to seek out like kind of veg shops and whole food places and plant based places that kind of had a whiff of spirituality in them and had a community. And it was this type of thing It was like, why don't we start a veg shop and start like a center for the revolution? You know, and that was probably what the lang- type of language we would have used. And yeah, we were 24 and we had just come home and we started a veg shop, which obviously before we left people in our town you know would have treated us with lots of respect and go ah those lovely happy pair lads they're really nice or those no we weren't happy pair lads we're those Flynn twins Flynn twins geez they're great at sport they really are they're great at sport and they're fierce nice lads and then here we were we were now vegan and didn't drink and we were starting a vegetable shop and people thought we'd really lost our way and you know they really almost looked down on us.
2: When you were talking in terms of revolution, who was your role model? Had you read like Autobiography of a Yoki or The Alchemist?
1: I tried that one a few times and I found it just too out there. I liked the stories, but I I certainly tried it a few times. I'd read, oh, geez, I can't even think of the books that we read. I definitely read The Alchemist and all those ones. What's Siddhartha? Siddhartha. Siddhartha. And The Glass Bead Game. I loved that. I thought it was a great book. They were nice books. But yeah, I can't even think back if there was any book in particular. But it was uh, yeah, we got we got into, as Stephen said, into vipassana, into those meditation mm-hmm. centers. So you'd we? done
2: that in Texas already at this point. You'd already done yeah, in the I, I, course?
1: I I did a ten day course. I remember I was hitchhiking from. Vancouver down to San Francisco and I wanted to or San Diego my brother our, our middle brother was in San Diego and I was like I tried to get there before and I didn't get there I was like I'm getting to San Diego and I remember on the bus I met these people that were going to Burning Man it was like whoa
0: Burning Man I
1: heard about that that sounds cool and they were wearing cool clothes and I thought wow I want to be like that so I remember I went down and met my brother Mark and told Mark I'm going to Burning Man sorry and I hitchhiked my way up to I think it was Nevada
2: or one yeah of Nevada towns.
1: Yeah, Nevada. yeah, yeah. And I went there and spent uh, maybe a week or two there. And I remember I, I just had enough one day and I just I was on my own and I just said, I'm getting a lift with. in my head. I just said, I'm getting a lift with whoever the next person is. And I don't care where they're going. I'm just I'm leaving because I stayed <laughs> around for a week to help tidy up. And then the guy that was giving me a lift, really nice guy, took me to San Francisco. And I remember I ended up in a hostel in San Francisco. And I remember sitting there going, okay, I've heard of this place called hedonism, an island, where it was all exploring meaning through hedonistic life. And I thought, that sounds great. And then at the other time, I'd heard about this thing called V Passion Meditation. And I thought, well, okay, I'll have a look for both them and I'll apply to both of them and I'll see which one comes and I'll go to whichever one you know opens up to me first. And I got accepted into this VPassion and Meditation course in Texas. So I hitchhiked my way right across from California to Texas. And I went and did this, this 10-day meditation course. And I thought going in, I was wildly curious about it. And I was kind of, you know, the first few days, it felt like, am I being brainwashed? What the hell is going on? And then this simple concept of can you sit with yourself and your own thoughts and find peace it was like oh my god this is the most profound simple and hardest thing I've ever done and at the end I remember feeling just so euphoric and connected And it was like why why don't we all do this this is such a practice to help us feel more comfortable within ourselves and find more grace in our daily life and I remember calling Dave up and Dave was, I don't know where the hell you were. You were pretty in Central America, but mango tree stuff in your face. But dad had done a course with this fella called Tony Robbins. And I remember him saying, lads, you gotta go. It was amazing. If you can find your way to New York, I'll pay for it. He thought it was that good. So we found our way to New York and me and Dave went and did the Tony Robbins course. And it was fabulous and be great fun. And we loved it. And then the week afterwards, we ended up going up to Massachusetts to do a meditation course in Vipassana. And it was such a contrast between here was one incredibly inspiring man suggesting you can do it all you can have it all you can be who you want and then the other one was like sit in silence and find peace and we, we were much more drawn towards the v passionate thing it just seemed to really it really struck a chord with us a chord that we didn't expect and we ended up staying there for a month and really for the next couple of years we used to meditate two hours every day it was a really strong practice and something that gave us huge meaning
2: Dave, that was your first with experience in Massachusetts?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah One we, month. Yeah. We ended up spending a month. Yeah. Well, like I did a 10 day course and then we stayed on for I don't know how many courses just cooking and cleaning and volunteering.
2: Meditating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sure. We had nothing to be doing. So it was great. It was good, good fun. You know, we loved it. We'd a ball. Like uh, it sounds crazy, but we'd, we'd such a laugh doing it, right. while meditating and all that as well. It was a really fun time as well.
2: In hindsight, maybe you didn't realize this at the time. Would you say in hindsight that was where you first cooked up the idea of this revolution?
1: I don't think either of us could ever say we cooked it up. I'd say we are just going. Or it, was, it was downloaded.
2: It was downloaded from the cloud.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe there was like we got a big breadcrumb there. But literally, we were following the breadcrumbs, and there was no idea of where we were going. Like even starting the vet shop, it wasn't like we were going for you know we were we were going to build this this right. vehicle for social change. It was like we were starting, to, you know,
2: we, A we fruit stand we were basically.
1: We knew what we were doing today. <laughs> Uh, Maybe this week, but but we did like you're being facetious here. We did have this idea that we wanted to create. I called you up and said, let's start a food revolution. It was very clear that we weren't starting a fruit and veg shop to sell fruit. But we didn't know what we were. It was like we didn't it wasn't like we were trying to open three stores or five stores or 10 stores. Like we didn't have but any idea we, what it looked like. We didn't want it. There was no
2: business that. plan basically.
1: No, we knew what it felt like. Yeah. See that, see that was the thing. It was like, and, and ironically, Dave will say it wasn't three stores it a five store. There was no limit on it. It was like, this is just this vision. We want to create a revolution. So there's no, no end to the work. This is, this this isn't about measured in profitability or like balance sheet or, you know, mm-hmm. what's your working capital? It was measured in like how much social impact can we have and how can we just bring more meaning to our community and to the world at large? So it was really so exciting and it still is. You know, we've been out of 17 years. That, that was the the inception of it.
2: All right, so you had an MBA.
1: Yeah, MBS. So I did a master's in business studies, specializing in e-commerce.
2: So you have the idea. We're going to open up this thing. What's the first step? What's literally, what's the first thing? You do you come up with a name? Do you have the happy pair at that time? Did you find a location? Did you get that $100,000 yeah. loan right away? Like, How did you decide to tackle this?
1: I think you walked into the local veg shop and asked your man, would he sell it? And he said, everything's for sale at the right price. So I was like, oh, okay, my a <laughs> clubhouse here. And then I think we went to the bank. It was 2004. So we did a business plan on the back of an envelope. There was, it was the Celtic Tigers. There was loads of money around. So Celtic Tiger, for those of you who don't know, was a time in Ireland when it was a huge economic boon. And, the and, boom and, and it was, it was a lot so of easy to get money. So we were able to borrow 100 grand very easily to kind mm-hmm. of take over this little vegetable shop. And we ended up calling it the happy Pear, but we nearly called it Flinner's Fruit and Veg for social change because really baked into it from the very start was the idea of, you know it really was about social impact and about trying to get people to eat more veg to build community and inspire people to live happy healthier lives which sounds like something out of walt disney but we gave porridge away for free we used to talk in local schools which sounds quite normal now but back then it was like 17 years ago it was quite a it was quite a different kind of way of doing things you know
2: what did you want to do differently than whatever the person who you bought the shop was doing with their fruit and vegetable?
1: Well, they were shop. selling vegetables. We were selling a better way of life.
2: So it was okay. a fundamental difference. Talk about the difference in that in those two.
1: Well, well, most people probably have heard that analogy of you know you've got the person built you know there's like a guy carrying bricks and he's kind of going oh what do you do for a living and he goes oh, i just like carry bricks all day and it's so annoying And then you've got this other guy and he goes well i just like i carry bricks to my friend or he's like slightly up the food chain or whatever and he's carrying bricks and he's putting more down or whatever and then the third guy's like skipping along and he's like i'm building a cathedral <laughs> and i guess i think it's more your perspective on what you do as much as what you do and i guess We were never selling vegetables. We were always changing the world. Like that was what we were trying to do. I remember, ironically, we used to fill out these central statistic offices, a government body who was trying to, you know, keep stats on the industry in Ireland. And I remember I used to, for some reason, I started filling out those forms. And when you start filling them out, they seem to send them to you every feckin' month. And I remember they'd always ask, what's your profession? And I'd always write revolutionary. And I'd always go, why the hell don't they have revolutionary up in this? Because like... For us, it really wasn't that we were selling fruit and veg. It was like... We and and looking the- back now, we were very naive and like <laughs> foolish or whatever. But that was the pers- that was the reality of where we were at then.
2: You used to also say that instead of, I'm going to work, I'm going to play. We still say that.
1: We're going to, right. going to play. So yeah.
2: talk a little bit about the way you decided to approach business, yeah. having had all of your experiences and what you were going to do differently.
1: Well, I guess it was like most people starting a business would do a business plan and they've got a structured and a strategy and projected earnings and costs and they've done all their spreadsheets and all sorts of things. We didn't do any of that. We didn't do it. (laughs) And yet our training was all in that. Like we didn't do the tiniest bit of that. Like we didn't just, it was, it really was about, and it sounds so twee, but it was- So ignorant. So stupid, really, you know, but uh, it really was about, Trying to change the world. And our world at the time was our own little town. So it really was about trying to get people to eat more veg, trying to bring people together and help. Inspire more food. people like into a more positive way of life. You know, we, we didn't like it. It really was like feeling around in the dark for figuring out what it was, but certainly we had found through changing our own diet and lifestyle and the way we were living, our own experience of well-being had changed hugely. And I guess it was about. How can we share this gift or how we can? We felt like we found a big breadcrumb and we wanted to
2: share it with more people. So, how did you imagine it playing out back in the early days? Did you think people were just gonna come and it'd be word of mouth, everyone's gonna love it, and then somebody's gonna hear about it in London? And then we we're no gonna, idea.
1: Gonna go... we, we no idea. We, we were, were having a ball. The thing was to have so much fun today. Like I think it was like literally about. Like we just had so much fun playing shop, like literally getting in our little van, driving into the fruit market at four thirty in the morning, rocking around the, the market, buying vegetables, coming back, setting up shop, yeah, and then seeing who was going to come in today and who you're going to meet and the chats, who you going to wag your tail to and just have a ball with and and then and then what we found was because we were having so much fun, there was so many other people wanted to help you. They just wanted to help you, and they didn't want money. Like they just wanted to help you. They wanted to be involved. Jeez, lads, you're having a ball. How can I help you? And we found there was so many people kind of helped us find our way and help chart a path.
2: Pierce was one of your first people who wanted to help you guys?
1: Pierce was, yeah, Pierce. There was loads of people, like there was loads of Spanish people and Siobhan and people that would be off for the summer. And they'd say, oh, listen, you can just pay me in vegetables. Like, or you don't need to pay me. Like, I'll just help you. Like, you're <laughs> You're so far off the mark here, lads I'll, just, <laughs> I'll help you a little bit. It's so filthy, like you know, or whatever it was. You know, it was just people realizing that we could do it a help, and we were that it probably, we were very well intentioned, but probably we could do it a little bit of the
2: pencil being a sharp bit of guidance or whatever. Four thirty in the morning, fruit stand. Talk about how that sort of dovetailed into your morning routine.
1: Yeah, I guess it's evolved over the years because. I guess even, even then when we used to go to the fruit market, this is for the first kind of decade, we used to go to the fruit market at 30 in the morning, one of us watermark would, and we used to get up at 3.30 and meditate before it, which was really, you know, sadistic. <laughs> but we used to do that, and then we'd meditate in the evening or whatnot as well. And that lasted probably until we had kids, not together, but separately. And then just there was too much other, to, to, uh, priorities shifted completely. I guess having kids, you're just fighting the storm for the first couple of years. But I guess we were used to early mornings, and that was we realized the joy of early mornings and and early the, t- the peace and the silence and the kind of for ourselves. You know, everyone's different, but for us, it it, it provided more space to to connect with ourselves and to feel more grounded. And the silence, there was a solace in the silence. You know, that was kind of often missing during the busyness of the day. So even like our our morning routine for the last. Close to a decade now really has been was we'll swimming at sea at sunrise the cold irish sea and yeah. sunrise changes so in summer right now sunrise today was five twenty four uh the peak of summer which is june twenty first or the summer solstice it'll it's be four fifty a m four fifty a m And then in winter, the winter solstice, typically, which is June 21st, September or December, December 21st. It's actually December 27th. If technically, as someone who watches the sunrise every day, it's about 8.47. So it really does change. So our morning routine tends to evolve around the sunrise. So. You know, in summer, typically we'll get up and go swim first and then go do some degree of training or meditation and then go back to the family. And then in winter, typically we'll get up and train first, maybe meditate and then go swimming or then have breakfast and then go swimming. But I think the importance of a changing routine is nice. Like it, you don't get too stuck in a rut. Like because the time changes, you can't get too comfy. You know, you can't have your I get up at six thirty and I meditate and then I do my yoga and then I drink my lemon water and then I do my gratitude journal and then I do my 10 jumping jacks and then it's 10 o'clock and then it's nearly bedtime. and I'm <laughs> nearly finished. My, you know, you, you can't have this completely structured routine, which in one sense is great and in another sense it's frustrating because when you find you've got one that you like, then it changes again, you know. But but it's 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 wonderful in that the act of seeing the sunrise and swimming in the sea really connects you with the seasons, the changing of the seasons connects you with nature. It's a wonderful symbolism or metaphor for baptizing yourself in the water and overcoming a, a fear together and coming out and feeling like these little penguins drinking tea, drinking warm tea, shivering, going and, and and maybe Steve, like we swim in the sea, and and there's a whole group of us that do it swim in the sea at sunrise, and there can be up to a hundred or more you know more that we've done events where there can be you know a thousand people but typically there's somewhere between five and 30 or 40 or 50 people and we swim at the sea at sunrise and it's a really lovely communion I'd say communion because the root of the word you're doing something together and at that hour of the morning it is quite peaceful and calm and people typically aren't chattering they're quite most people are kind of, oh, I feel tired or whatnot. But it's quite a mindful time in the morning. And then you don't want to get in the sea. You're kind of facing your fear first thing in the morning, which I think is such a beautiful metaphor because I'd say 364 to 365 days of the year. I don't feel like getting in that sea. I don't want to get in the sea. It's not natural. I go down there and I go, why the hell do I do this? This is stupid. Like, it's so cold. And do I have to do it? And it's raining and it's windy and blah, 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 And then I get in the sea And I hit that water and I just, oh, my God, just feel it. And every day I get out of that water and go, I'm surprised at how incredible I feel. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. And I'm honestly surprised, like, about how it seems it strips away the boring adult that's whinging about things. And my inner child kind of jumps out and goes, woohoo here we go and it, it's a it's a blessing and right? you do that with others and you're all like these loose jacked up electrons bouncing around the beach drinking tea yeah, and you enjoyed. forge wonderful friendships because there's so much endorphins like it is like an adrenaline sport there's so much endorphins it kind of <laughs> is there's so much hormones or adrenaline's <laughs> released when you do that first thing in the morning and then you stand around and drink tea and talk and chat and you forge these really deep bonds quite quickly
2: yeah, I heard you say something really profound. You said you don't love the person that goes into the sea, but you love the person that comes out of the sea. Yeah. Question, are we talking like just a quick little, let me go dip my body in, or are we talking swimming out 200 meters and then no. back? Or what is, it? The, what is the routine? The it, it, it
1: depends on the time of the year. So in winter, it's technically called ice swimming because the water, like it's moving water, body water. So it, it can only get to five degrees. That's the coldest it can get but it's freezing. Like sometimes cold. we say it's like getting into like a million shards of glass because it feels like it's so cold. You're not sure if you're you being burned. It, you you're... don't know if it's hot or cold. It's just this very intense sensation. feeling. But it's it's just so electrifying, whatever the heck it does. And, and in winter... So, typically... so, but to answer your question, it's just a dip. I'd say half of the year, it's a dip. And then the other half of the year, it's a slightly longer dip. And then it gets into a swim when it gets warmer. But typically <laughs> the dip, you'll go in and your breath is like... You, you start hyperventilating. You're <laughs> staying until your breath calms and until you normalize with it, and that's Which is mm. only forty seconds. I'd say it's it more like a dip than a swim. Yeah. So we're not complete whipping ourselves
2: like. So there's no wetsuits being worn at any uh, point. No. Yeah. So this has become a movement. You guys started making porridge for people. Would you say that this is something that really helped to spread this revolution? this idea of hey come and join us because you know you posted the thing that time you had 150 people turn up and now it's become this whole thing
0: yeah yeah
1: i guess like nowadays like even today there was someone there's two lovely friends from germany and then a a lovely girl from london came over so regularly people from all over the world come and join us for the simple act of Scotland. the day before there was four women from london so there's lots of people kind of show up and go oh that seems like something fun i'd love to go do that and, so and People kind of, do just show up randomly. From, it provides that lovely, I guess, in a time when loneliness and disconnection is extremely prevalent. It provides a simple, free, accessible means with which to kind of commune with others, commune with nature and suddenly go, wow, the simple things in life really do and can it, provide me with significant meaning and a feeling of connection and belonging. And the type of people that get up and swim at sunrise are a certain type of people like. And I shouldn't say it's a particular type, but it's maybe at different in a different stage. There's a certain life. zest for life. You know, you wouldn't get everyone to do it because it's it's uncomfortable. It's not present like it's not particularly it's not like you're swimming in the Caribbean. It's getting into the Irish Sea and you don't know if it's going to be sunny or rainy or windy and It never, it never lets you down. There's never a day you get in there and go, geez, I wish it had been And one of the beautiful things about it is that no matter where you're at in society, if you're someone that's perceived as really successful and someone who isn't successful, you stand there in a pair of togs and you're all scared. You're all like little babies that don't want to get in. And then you come out and you just feel extremely equal. It's really good for human dignity that we're all equal. We're all unified. And something that's glorious about it is that it's not like most of us typically have friends, which are our own peers. You know, they're the similar, you know, we all go to school at the same age groups, and our friends growing up are typically the same ages. But the type of people who we who we swim with are just such a mixture of ages from and different 70s countries. and 60s and 50s and 40s and 30s and 20s and 16-year-olds. And it's just it's such a diversity of humans that it's really enriching i think yeah it's very enriching in terms of you know if you think of your microbiome as a collection of diverse microorganisms and the health of your own immune system is directly correlated to the diversity of the microorganisms within your gut i think it's the same within as a community on a macro perspective the diversity that we have in terms of friendships and relationships probably the more resilient we are possibly possibly that's
2: now a a half-baked theory were you guys making your loan payments in those early days? No problem.
1: Yeah, I think we paid it back. Uh, we must have paid it back because we're still in business. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> no, at, at times, like for the first number of years, we were very ir- financially irresponsible. We kind of didn't measure the business really in terms of financial profit and loss and, you know, where we were at. And yet we had, you know, a, a number of years of training in that in that discipline we kind of, uh, I guess I, I I remember going to, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Patch Adams um, mm. with, with what's his name? Yeah, Robin Williams. I remember finding my way to Chicago. I'd met some at some egalitarian commune that he spoke at this school called School for Designing a Society. I thought, wow, that sounds cool. And I remember going up there and meeting some fellow called Mark. And he said they were doing a summer month down in Patch Adams, community Gesundheit. called Gesundheit in North Carolina and I remember finding my way down there and it was I spent West a Virginia month... it was West okay was somewhere anyway West Virginia and I went and kind of you know it was a, a month-long exploring the concept of you know how can you use business as a vehicle for social change and I remember I was I was hugely intrigued with it and I remember I think it was a lady called Judy Wicks who started this cafe called the Black Dog Cafe She had said that money is a bit like manure. You pile it up nice and high and it smells of shit or it smells of dung. But if you spread it out amongst the community, you can encourage so much to grow. So I think money, although we had been trained in the art of capitalism, ultimately within ourselves, we wanted to kind of encourage more community and more togetherness. So money really we'd seen as a bit, bit almost against it because I don't know, it was initially, but over time we learned that if we want to be a business within capitalism, profit is okay and you need to if you do want to sustain your business you need to run a financially responsible business so it it took the best part of 10 years to make peace with that but we've made peace with it now yeah we've been in business nearly 18 years and it's gone from where we started with a little vegetable shop and I guess it reached a high of 200 and something people working with us but now it's back down to about 100 we've got two cafes and a shop and two farms and coffee roastery and we've got five cookbooks and a sixth one coming out next month and we've online courses and 60 food products in a thousand stores in ireland so like hummus and pestos and granolas and ready meals in super value and central around ireland so it's and then we've online courses yeah so we've got so we've been very diverse in terms of our activities as well in terms of how we can Support yeah. people to yeah, even at the moment we were we were talking about it earlier, we kind of got quite the spectrum in terms of a diverse business. We have, you know, we've literally started a regenerative organic farm. So we have our hands in our soil, in the soil, and then the other spectrum we've an app coming out, you know, at the end later at the end of the month. So it's quite in September. And in between, we've all facets of or many of the facets of a food business. So it's yeah, it's quite a fun, diverse adventure.
2: What are your natural roles that you sort of organically grew into as, as business leaders or as leaders of this, this movement, this revolution? Is one of you more interested in finances or the other one more interested in managing people or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: What's that so that's, that's the beauty of being twins. You share the same blind spots and you this um, same strength. Inheritance. Inheritance. Um, by and large by and large, but do we have specific roles yeah we know it'd be much better if one of us was clear on numbers and one wasn't but we're both a bit like two dancing ponies or we're both kind of like we both typically like a lot of the same things and i guess as two people that are good with vision and good with dreams and don't really see boundaries and like being up and seeing where we're going and steering what's going on and strategy and And like starting projects, we're very good at those type of things. And a lot of the things in between, we're less good at. Yeah. And I guess that's where you learn that it took us a long while to learn that that's where um, a team is really important. team, our brother Dara, to delegate. Our brother Dara runs the company with Paul, and they're both the main kind of, they're good at structures and systems and financial controls and management. And they're much better at those bits, and we're less good at those bits. And it can be a good dance together.
2: To have a brand called the happy pair, I mean, that's a really tight corner to paint yourself in, because it also means that your team, your employees have to somewhat embody this sense of happiness, right? So how do you think about hiring? How do you think about hiring team members, bringing people on to your team? And how do you think about firing?
1: Sensitively and gently and considerately, I think that would probably be what we do, but certainly in the early days where we were directly in terms of hiring, it would have been like picking a, you know, a family member. You know, you'd be very careful and you'd make sure you really, you really want, you were bringing, picking a family member. So it would have been super, super important. But then as the business grew to where we at, we weren't, we couldn't manage it because there was so much that we were being dragged here, there and the other with writing cookbooks and traveling and doing talks and all sorts of things that the day-to-day business, we couldn't handle that and do the kind of more brand building pieces. So our brother and others kind of took on the hiring bits because we had a production facility where you're making pestos and hummuses so you've got kind of production kitchens and then you've got chefs and then you've got people cleaning pots and then you've got people serving customers and then you've got people working on the farm and then you've got other people in computers and you've got IT systems people so there was such a diversity of people that you needed a diversity of skills but but in essence I, I guess to answer your question more directly you know I always like Richard Branson's kind of expression hire for attitude train for skill and Generally, even Jamie Oliver, who we used to work with in London when we first started doing YouTube, his team would always say that, you know, typically someone that you'd enjoy sitting beside for a long haul flight. That's kind of Mm. generally. You want to be able to have someone, you know, if you're going to work with someone, you're going to typically be spending lots of time with them. So you want to make sure there's someone that you you like to enjoy their company. And from there, and if they have a good openness and kind of willingness to learn, we can make it happen. And I guess, as I said, we did kind of grow to where we had a team of 220, I think, at the height. And now we're back down to about 100. And now it seems more right-sized. And now it's kind of back to more familiar, more family kind of, because I guess at that stage, there was new people starting every week and we didn't know their names and didn't know, hadn't been involved with them. And every time you went down to Perville, where our food production place, you were introducing yourself, oh, hello, hi, I'm David. And you didn't know who the heck they were. And you, you didn't know if they worked with you or not, or you just... Or worked. what they did. It kind and of you felt were... Like, you just felt a bit like a, an imposter, whereas now it's kind of it feels more homely again and more familiar and a bit more like the, the Rebel t- Alliance, the Renegade Rebel Alliance that's trying
2: to improve yes. the world. So you mentioned Jamie Oliver. He invited you to join his Food Tube network and, and you learned a lot. You learned what people want, what people don't want, what works, what doesn't work. Can you share a few of those takeaways from that experience? we were kind of
1: invited by Jamie Oliver and his team to go be part of his food tube network. So I think it was a total of 10 different content creators from all over the world. And we used to go up to London once a month and shoot YouTube videos. And it was really fun and exciting. And, you know, it was quite a little bit of tinsel. It was like a draw.
0: Wow. We're going
1: over. We're shooting with Jamie, and his team. And Oh my God, this is so exciting. And it was a wonderful opportunity for us, I guess, to use the digital platform to try to inspire people to eat more veg. And I guess, you know, we've been shooting YouTube videos for probably seven, eight years now since then. And it's, you know, it's gone from where we probably had two subscribers to now there's over half a million subscribers on YouTube and probably a million and a half across different platforms. But it's, a, it's the same kind of thing. We try to use it as a means to inspire people to eat more veg and to kind of. Do our best to try to inspire people to connect to live, and you and you realize very quickly that you know it has to be very zeitgeist to get views. You know, it is a game; it's a competition again. So we quickly, in terms of, you know, we realized people didn't want they didn't have a lot of time to cook and wanted quick, easy, simple things. So we started cooking five minute dinners, which was you know because people say I don't have the time and and whatnot. So we started cooking a five minute dinners, and you know now I think we've got nearly fifty million views on our videos, and they're. They're really quick, easy, simple dinners to help people to eat more fruit and veg. And We've just got a new book coming out now in two weeks time. It's called The Veg Box, which is all about it's the distillation of your ultimately trying to inspire people like the current food environment doesn't really encourage us to eat more fruit and veg. It's not set up for us to be healthy like it's really not. It's for us to. It's to satisfy our desires for fat and sugar. That's the current food environment. And it's... And to, it's really, scr- to scratch our dopamine addiction. Like, really. And it really is. And that's the kind of at its root. And it's incredible. The food system is amazing how we feed so many people every day and whatnot. But certainly in ter- from a health perspective, if you look at the longest living people on the planet, the vast majority of what they're eating is plant-based foods. You know, people that live over the age of 100, if you look to the blue zones, 95% plus their diet is plant-based, whole plant foods. Where if you look at the average kind of Western person's diet... 50% plus of their diet is ultra processed foods about 35 to 40 is animal based foods and less than 10% is whole plant foods whereas so it's kind of a little inverse in terms of longevity and health and well-being and ultimately our mission really is about trying to empower each individual to kind of go okay health is ultimately we all want to wake up and have energy we want to feel good we want to feel confident in our bodies and food is such an important component and In our experience of nearly 20 years later at this, the more whole plant food, it's not about vegan, it's not about vegetarian, because those words are very exclusive and binary, but it is about eating more whole foods. And it does take intentionality because we are all the products of our environment. You know, we're the product of the people we spend time with, we're the product of our societies, our communities we live in. And unfortunately, you go into most supermarkets and the, the processed, refined foods typically are cheaper. And our mammal brains are hardwired to want these processed junk foods, whereas, you know, the foods that we've evolved on are typically whole, real foods in their natural state. So the more whole plant foods you can eat, the, that's the name of the game, really. And I think food offers a wonderful ability for us to connect. It's something that, you know, now if you think about, if you ask anyone what's at the heart of our economies, and most people think it's the financial sector. Oh, no, no, it's it's the, it's the residential tech. sector. It's tech, it's technology. But food is at the root of all economies because without food we're dead so food is literally it's the one thing beyond shelter and belonging and love uh, and warmth that we we all have to participate in every single day and in an age where loneliness is prevalent where disconnection when mental health is on the rise i think Being involved in our food system, connecting with the earth, understanding what's in season, appreciating that, it can bring such a sense of meaning and such a sense of simple significance and remind us that we're mammals that are fully interdependent on Mother Nature.
2: the idea. It's genius. So basically the subtitle is 10 vegetables, 10 ways. So what does that yeah. mean? What are the vegetables? Well, the
1: context is that like, you know, people will often go, oh my God, I don't have enough time and it costs so much. I'll just eat the pizza. And whereas you walk into any supermarket in the world and there's typically a special section and there's carrots and there's onions and there's potatoes and you go, oh, geez, oh, I'd love to buy them, but I don't know what to do with like 20 carrots. What am I going to do with 20 right. carrots? Not a or, rabbit. Or, or someone makes the Sunday dinner and they, and they buy a pack of carrots and they use most of them and there's three carrots in the fridge and they're sitting there two weeks later and they go, what do I do with these carrots? What do I do with this broccoli? So instead of doing breakfast, lunch and dinner, we went with the 10 most common veg. So broccoli, mm-hmm. potatoes, carrots, you know, tomatoes, leek, mushrooms, 10 most regular veg. And we kind of said, okay, well, how can we push these to our limits? We've had 20 years eating plant-based. We've had nearly 18 years of cooking professionally with food products, all things. How can we make these 10 vegetables be as tasty as we can? So say, for example, in the carrots, we've kind of gone, okay, well, like people might make carrot soup, or they might make boiled carrots. They might make mashed carrots. Okay, well, can we make carrot granola, Steve? Can we make carrot granola? Yeah, great. Let's make carrot granola. Cool, right? Let's see if we can do it 10, 10 ingredients. Brilliant. Great. I love it. Carrot flapjacks, carrot cake, carrot you know, <laughs> carrot burgers, carrot falafels. You know, see how far you can push it because people will want to know what to do with carrots. And we did the same with broccoli. And obviously, we kind of were seeing, can we make a cake with broccoli, Steve? Is there cakes with broccoli we can make? You know, we really wanted to push the limit. We limits. discovered you couldn't with broccoli. No, we couldn't come up with good cake. We did. We did try. But there's a lot of like broccoli pies and broccoli soups, and they're all with 10 ingredients or less. So the idea is really to empower people to kind of go, how can we make the food as simple, as quick, and as easy and as tangible? Because most people know they need to eat more veg, but the big gap is kind of going, well, what do I do with them? Like I've got Billy next door, he's got an allotment and he dropped me in a bag of courgettes. What the hell there's do zucchinis. I do with these zucchinis? What do I do with them? Well, listen, we've got you covered. We've got you covered courgette cakes and there's you know courgette falafels there's courgette fritters there's you know there's a million different things you can do but it's it's really tried to make we've tried to write the short letter here where it's simple and
2: digestible talk about your sustainable hierarchy
1: Yeah, sustainable hierarchy was really kind of going okay well people nowadays kind of get lost with should it be organic should it be local you know what what's perfection we get lost with perfection and often it can be stifling and it can be kind of arresting in a sense. So our kind of mantra is progress over perfection. And we start with number one in terms of like, and this is a study came from 2018 from Oxford University. And they wanted to see what's the most sustainable thing we can do as individuals for the environment. And most people would kind of go, OK, well, maybe it's flying less. Maybe it's an electric I car. need a Tesla. I need a Tesla. Yeah, it's definitely a Tesla. We all need Teslas. But uh, what they realized is that the single biggest thing that the, at an individual level was to eat a plant-based diet or as plant-based diet as you can, because you know, there's so much embodied energy in our food choices and each of us as individuals has a choice. Every time we we have a choice of going, okay, you know, am I supporting one type of food system and forming one type of capitalism or another? And I guess number one in terms of our sustaining hierarchy is to try to do your best to eat as plant-based as you can. Like as plant centric, it does. It's not an all or nothing type thing. It's not if you eat a piece of chicken. You're off the team. But it really is about trying to do your best to eat more whole plant foods. Like number two, we have to try to eat a variety and a diversity. The American Good Project, which was one of the big studies done in terms of microbiome and good health. They wanted to find out where the big levers in terms of our good health, because they realized that our microbiome, our good health, it impacts our immune systems, it impacts our mental health. It impacts every organ in our body. And they found out that if you eat more than 30 different plant-based foods in a week, you're going to be super powered. Your immune system will be, will function better. Your mental health will function. They found a correlation between a diversity of 30 different foods and better mental health. And typically it's only one in 125 people that actually hit that 30 different types of fruit and veg a week. Number three was to prioritize local. So people, you know, it's to kind of people get calls, but should it be local? Should it be seasonal? Should it be whatever? It's like. On our sustainable hierarchy, it's local. Obviously, locals can have less miles, less embodied energy. So it doesn't matter if it's organic or non-organic. Or- and also, there's a beautiful thing about eating in season. We live in this age now. You know, you can order things on your phone from sitting on your couch. You can we're 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 super disconnected. And like, say, you know, my wife, she's from Poland. We we'd go over there typically, you know, during summer. And my parents-in-law have a wonderful veg patch and they grow all their own food. And there's something beautiful about like, we only eat raspberries when raspberries are in season. And when you eat them in season, you gorge on raspberries and they're so special. And when raspberry season ends, you've eaten your weight in raspberry and you don't want to eat a raspberry for another year. And there's something beautiful about like the celebration of it. And then it kind of naturally comes to an end versus modern day society. We can eat raspberries at Christmas when they're not in season and they've flown halfway across the world. So I think the more we can celebrate local The more that we're working in harmony with our local ecosystem and i guess at the core of the sustainability hierarchy is progress over perfection like that has to be the mantra because there is no perfect we're all going to die anyway so it really is about doing your best and trying to stack the deck in your favor and it's thinking of the big boulders rather than getting lost in the pebbles in the sand and yeah trying to do local trying to prioritize organic trying to prioritize plant-based but doing your best you know we're all going to die anyway as we said so it's about Really doing your best, even on the topic of we were talking about food production, whatever. In the last number of months, we've just started a local regenerative farm. So we've just bought four acres of land, and we've started a community farm, which is very much at its core. The whole core, of the idea is to it's soil therapy and free workouts for the community to get up there and get a get a shovel and get a spade and help build vegetable beds. And it it really is the therapy. But but even over the last month, we've been Saturday mornings we've typically put it out we haven't put it out to the wider community but just to our little swim group we've kind of put it out you know come up and we jokingly say free workouts but it's there's something in our very the fabric of what it is to be a human mammal at least in the last hundred thousand years where we started kind of agriculture like the sense of working together with your hands in the soil with a collective project there's something about how it feeds our soul like we often say like putting your hands in soil it's like you're connecting with part of your soul. Like it's really, there's something so therapeutic and so primal. connecting and primal and working together and having these conversations. And when there's kids running around and you're outdoors and the birds are chirping and it just, you feel, it feels, you feel connected. You feel at ease. It feels like it's healing.
2: It's yeah. awesome too, because you're bringing together these things that are all so important to your message, which is community, which is movement. Which is doing things that are inconvenient? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, discomfort. Yeah, I think discomfort is is, and I guess we we came across it by swimming the sea. You know, just discomfort, the importance. But but, but even we experienced it ourselves. I guess with years of you know athletic training. But even then, say vipassana meditation, sitting still. Like I, I remember the first time I sat a vipassana course. I remember. I think it was day 4 you were introduced to this idea of Aditan sitting to sit for an hour without moving and I remember just it being absolute torture it was one of the hardest physical endurance things I ever did but over time you became more comfortable with this discomfort and it, it, it allowed you to kind of form a greater and it's not resilience. Saying, and it's not saying to be sadistic in any sense but there is this, I think the modern day word is more, what's that kind of, there's a trendy word for um, stoicism. Stoicism in itself. And it's a nice (laughs) word. And like a lot of kind of people can kind of go, Oh yeah. Like it's a nice, you know, I think they sell more. The rise in stoicism books has been massively over the last kind of five to 10 years, because I guess society is set up for us to be comfortable, particularly Western culture, where we spend a lot of time sitting and we've warm beds and heated houses and Food, we've so much food, like life has never been more comfortable in the history of humanity in the Western culture. And I'm not saying this exclusively for everyone, but by at large, it is. So discomfort is really it's flexing that muscle. If you look at the longest living people, again, it's not all comfortable. It's and and if you look at like if you look to the blue zones, they typically... They don't have cars. They got a cycle. They typically grow their own veg. They they have their hands in the soil. They're crouching down. They live in multi generational homes. No, I was going to say more on the the topic of like the the contrast between comfort and stress. I think that's where you find the greatest balance and the greatest area of growth. Like if you if you listen to some of the longevity talks, they'll say the importance of cold and heat and. War, you know, running and inactivity and the the contrast between both kind of tend to flex our muscles and give us a better heart rate variability or greater bandwidth of capacity of dealing with resilience and whatnot. And certainly we found that with the sea and with movement and all these various things of facing your fear on a daily basis and the importance of showing up because it's very easy to lie in bed and press that snooze button and it's very easy to choose that donut over that piece of fruit and it's so easy to get sucked into and it's so easy to sit there and watch show after show on netflix but i think it's a muscle that needs flexing and certainly we are very grateful for that somehow it's it's happened where we swim in the sea every morning at dawn and it's as I said, every day I don't feel like it, but every day I get in that sea, it's like I've done the hardest thing I can do. I faced fear and I feel like a better person and it's downhill from there. I feel like I'm on the this, the water. And slide. I think you'll know yourself, typically say you're going to do a talk or an interview that you're nervous about doing it and you could easily kind of want to quit. But typically on the other side of that discomfort is euphoria, is joy, is growth there's the two sides of life, the night and the dark. And when we can lean into that dark or that discomfort, we can experience more of the light. And I think it's so you can live straight down the middle of life. But I think it's only when you lean into that darkness that it expands your capacity to
2: experience lightness. I was vegetarian and vegan for about 15 years. I've been working out for over 20 years. I've been doing yoga for all that time, meditating for 20 plus years, surrounded in wonderful community and all of that. But I I say that probably the most important change that I ever made was giving up alcohol when I was in my mid twenties. You guys haven't been drinking for a very long time either. What, what would you say? How, how would you say that has affected you? And, and what what would your most important change be out of all the things that you guys are doing?
1: yeah never we never we kind of forgot that alcohol was had a serious piece to play because it has been 20 years like we forgot that it is like it's almost like the checkmate kind of piece that certainly for us it was it was, it was it was the tool that catalyzed a certain lifestyle for us and by moving that piece and we didn't mean to we gave it up for two weeks and that two weeks has been more than 20 years now so we never intended to it just ended up it it happened that way, but it certainly forced us to face ourselves, and it forced us to kind of have to embrace social discomfort and, and more realize with what was where was the authentic self, where is the real version of ourselves that what floats our own boats and to play our own ch- all these kind of like I could use loads of different cliches. Cliches, <laughs> you're doing great. But really, it's a in our own experience when we gave up alcohol, it forced us to have to go. Well, where is my meaning? Where do I find purpose? What kind of makes me feel more myself? And it forced us on that journey of realizing that food and community and spirituality and yoga, and it it really was the springboard when we look back now, that giving it up was it just enabled all these other things. And it's been a blessing in our lives. And I'm not saying there's any problem with alcohol, because everyone has their own individual relationship with it, but certainly we found it to be kind of giving it up. But like, I think I remember being frustrated with, I'd have loads of ideas at the start of the week of what I wanted to do. I'd have loads of dreams and visions. And then I might go for a drink with someone on Monday night. And this is in college. So this is in those days I go for a drink on Monday night. Uh, and in, then, in Ireland, there's an expression like there's no such thing as one drink. You have one uh, drink and, and, then, Ash, you'll have Ash, and you'll have then, another. And then Tuesday's a blur. And then Wednesday you go for another drink and then sure it's Sunday again. And you didn't, you realize, Oh my God, well, what happened? And, and I guess there was, There was underneath at a very deep level, there was that kind of realizing that, oh, my God, maybe this isn't the best thing to do. But there's all those social habits and all these social circumstances that were evolved around drinking alcohol. And then I guess it was for us, Really, we gave up just before we went away traveling separately. So we had a couple of years by ourselves roaming around where we weren't being held with social situations. We could reinvent ourselves everywhere we went and drink just wasn't part of it. And then we came home, we started The Happy Pair, which was the kind of antithesis of our rugby playing, alcohol, spilling, <laughs> women chasing days. And it really was, we were on a different path of vegetables and yoga and sea swimming. And it sounds very pious and very monastic-like, but that's kind of what it was like at the time. And I think what alcohol, for us anyway, it kind of provided kind of like a numbing fuel, it kind of numbed some of the disease that we felt within ourselves, and it was only when we kind of stopped drinking alcohol that we had to kind of deal with that discomfort or those or how do you find more meaning during your day that you're not looking forward to a friday night when i can actually be myself when i'm three points into it you know it was more that how do i like myself more during the day how do i if i if alcohol was the way to meet for us in our context for us to meet girls or women you know how can i talk to girls during the day like how do i become comfortable enough myself that I can just go up and have a chat with someone who I think I'd like to spend time with. And those things, and then when I realized you could talk to girls during the day, well, then it was totally sustainable.
2: (laughs) How are you all thinking about success these days? A total arbitrary term
1: ultimately for me it's we event. could give you we could give you a rational idea or but then like we're we're still privy to all the same fallacies that the conditioning we've been conditioned with so we are not evolved beings we are flawed humans fumbling along doing our best so that's the pretext to this so steve do you want to give the lofty answer <laughs> no <laughs> um, no I, I i at least where i'm at now i guess it's to maintain clarity and connection to a deeper version of myself and to, uh, I don't know, I can go. I'd say, I'd say we know there's more to life than beyond materialism and fame and shiny, bright things. So it's on a daily basis. Success is becoming more at ease with ourselves and And, and more accepting of all these flaws and fallacies within ourselves. And also, I think success is the ability to be present with the little things in life. Walking past the flowers and just admiring their beauty, seeing the way the light reflects on the leaves, seeing the flowers that are in front of you now, or seeing even joy in the challenges of life. I think that's success. And that's success. And saying that, like, as we said, we're flawed humans fumbling along, doing our best. And some days we're great at it. And other days we're not as good at
2: it. (laughs) So you all have been in the cafe book business, the social media business for a very long time. You both have families, both have kids. If you could go back and give your 23-year-old self some words of wisdom from all of your years of experience, when you first brought up this idea of this revolution, what would you say?
1: Slow down and revel in it all. It passes really quick. <laughs> I'd say, go hard, go fast, get in and enjoy it all. <laughs> well, there's the balance right there. Don't be afraid. You know the way like it's so easy to be afraid and to hide behind whether it be alcohol or hide behind something. But I think get stuck in. Don't be afraid. Like do your best to embrace discomfort while still respecting that sometimes discomfort is a survival mechanism, but do your best to find that balance with where you're putting yourself in a position where you can grow and to show how incredible you really are. Because no matter how much money or how much things you collect ultimately, we all have to live with ourselves and make peace with ourselves in each moment. So I think it's that reminder that, hey, the whole thing's a game, like really just enjoy the journey, keep on smiling, enjoy the whole trip and take it easy and revel in it.
2: What's the biggest misconception that people have about you guys compared to your real life?
1: I don't know. I quite like the recent expression that what other people think of me is not my business. I, I like that in theory, but i don't know i know people people who come meet us they go oh my god jeez you're even like i didn't think you'd be like you are on social media you're like just the same or even worse like worse (laughs) even more like than (laughs) our like people go i didn't really think i thought this was a show like and it's like no we're just two lads running around having a good time you know doing our best generally you know that's generally what it is we're quite happy go lucky you know being identical twins or whatever
2: Awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on, sharing your story. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the actual book book. I have a, a galley copy of it now. When is it out? We uh, got our,
1: we get the first real copies today. We literally opened it. So it's, it's called dark. The Veg Box. It comes out June the 9th. Yeah, we're really excited. We're really proud. And it really is all about inspiring you to eat more veg and to make it as simple and practical so that you waste less. Our, we reckon you'll save back the cost of the book within three weeks of using it.
2: Beautiful. And this is number six, right? Book number six?
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is a short letter.
2: Cool, man. Well, thanks. Thank you guys. I look forward to getting a chance to cross in person at some point soon. Maybe when I come over to Europe again, I'll pop up to Ireland. Everyone tells me how beautiful it is and looking at your social media, it looks amazing. And I now want to go into the freezing cold water with you, (laughs) 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 which is not my thing at all. But, you know, hey, you're you're the average of the people you hang out with. Right, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, guys. Really lovely to chat. You really enjoyed it. Thanks, brother.
0: Thank you again for tuning into my conversation with Steve and Dave. You can get their new book, The Veg Box, everywhere books are sold, and you should follow them on social media at The Happy Pair. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with all kinds of luminaries. Everyone from director Ava Duvernay to Yoga with Adrian founder Adrian Mishler, to the War of Art author Stephen Pressfield and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search past interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. If you go to that page, you'll see a drop down menu at the top of the page where you can search by subjects like people who've overcome financial struggles, people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've navigated health challenges. So if you're going through something similar, you can find other people who've already been through it and you can hear their takeaways and their lessons learned that may potentially help you as you're moving through that challenge right now. And again, you can get all of that at lightwatkins.com slash show. Also, don't forget, I have a YouTube channel. You can watch these interviews and put a face to the story. And you can hear the raw unedited version of every interview in my happiness insiders online community. If you're the type of person that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning and the end of every episode, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only will you have access to the unedited versions of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge. And there's a 108-day movement challenge. One way to support this show is to leave a rating or review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly by glancing down at your device. And on the Apple Podcast app, just go to the name of the podcast, click on it which is The Light Watkins Show. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see five blank stars. Just tap the one all the way on the right and you've left a rating. It literally only takes 10 seconds. Thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of our purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking your leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free
2: and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.